and in a minute we're going to read that text, but let's pray together. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for the anointed prayer meeting that you gave our ladies, where they felt the help of your spirit and the encouragement of your spirit. And we thank you for all the prayers that were offered up, both in the men and women's prayer meeting. Lord, we ask that you would hear those. Be gracious to us now, especially as we come before your word. Lord, as as our brother Ron Miller prayed earlier, we want to be changed by your word. And so if we come out of this unchanged, it will be, uh, in that sense, unsuccessful. But for us to be changed, we are completely dependent on your spirit. So I pray that you would help me and help all of us and change us through your word permanently. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, there is a uh, there's an old worn-out joke that perhaps you've heard. Uh, it's been around for a while now, and I'm sure many of you have heard it. But uh, isn't it great when you, you start you start in to to tell a joke, and somebody says somebody says to you, "Oh, I've already heard that one," <laughs> but you go ahead and tell it anyway, and then and then they say, "Yeah, I heard that." Anyway, this is one of these. There's a guy who was uh, he was he was on an island, and he was he was there. He was, got trapped. He got stranded on an island, and uh, and he was there for years, so he had a set-up habitation. And at one point, this ship comes by and comes to, to uh, seize this guy there with a hut. And a guy flags him down and, you know, says, save me, save me. So the guy comes by, and he gets him on the ship. And he and he's, as they're sailing away, the captain looks at him and says, uh, well, I thought you were here by yourself. Yeah, yeah, what's your problem? Well, then why are there three huts there? He says, oh, well, this one, uh, this one was my house, and this one was my hut. Well, what's the third one? Oh, that was the, uh, the. He said this one was the. This one was the church, and this one was. Sorry, this one was the church, and this one was my house. He says, "Well, what's the third one?" He goes, "Oh, the third one was the church I used to go to." <laughs> and uh, it's funny, but it's sad because there's something about it that rings true in our own experience. Sadly, I think among Christians. Uh, is there something that we, you know, division in the church is just something that we've grown to kind of expect. And that's sad. And it's become the punchline to a bad joke. For people who have been a part of or who have watched a church split or have gone through the trauma of seeing division in the church, uh, it is no laughing matter. Uh, the fact is it's grieving and it's tragic. 
And some of you have experienced that, and you know the, 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 the grief that it can bring to you. Now, although there are times when it can be appropriate and even biblical for Christians to part ways, the sad truth is that most of the time that division is over petty and sinful, even, even issues driven by pride and, and anger and bitterness at times. And the Lord Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 21, that we Christians might be one. And our unity is meant uh, to serve as a testimony to all the world around us. In fact, our unity as Christians is one of the hallmarks of the church. So even a cursory reading of Ephesians, the book that we're in tonight, makes this explicitly clear. In chapter 2, it's very obvious, uh, Paul's emphasis on unity. And in chapter 4 tonight, Paul's main emphasis is on Christian unity. And he argues that unity is the responsibility of every member of the church, particularly every member of a local church. Now, with that said, there is a lot of misunderstanding about Christian unity and what constitutes biblical or Christian unity. And so we need to be really clear on what it's not uh, so that we don't end up with a theology that sounds more like the – I don't know if you remember the, the kids' song. Uh, maybe it's still around uh, the more we get together, 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 the more we get together, the happier we'll be. You know, when your friends are my friends and my friends are your friends, the more we get together, the happier we'll be. Well, that's a nice song for kids, but it's really bad when we try to apply that theologically. And unfortunately, the subject of Christian unity, uh, it tends to uh, create a polarization of extremes. So people usually fall out on extremes on this matter. On the one hand, uh, some people pretend to be too inclusive for the sake of unity. Uh, they ramble on with things like no creed but Jesus and no book but the Bible. What does that mean exactly? I mean, these folks are the same people who think that doctrine doesn't really matter all that much just as long as we're united, right? And oddly enough... They think by doing that that they're actually answering Jesus' prayer in John 17 for unity. But they're not. Friends, there's no comfort in Ephesians 4 in this passage tonight for uh, those who are extra zealous to erase all doctrinal boundaries, right, and dream up a utopian super church that's just based on a lot of warm feelings about Jesus and the Bible. But on the other hand, some people are too exclusive for the sake of purity. Uh, these are the folks who are ready to declare something wrong, always ready to declare something wrong or, e or even someone wrong, or maybe even declare someone not to be a Christian. They neglect the, they neglect the wideness of God's love that he shows in Scripture, and we have to avoid such a spirit. We threaten our humility when we become self-righteous about this. But truth and humility are not enemies. In fact, knowing the truth will humble us. Perhaps you've seen those uh, individuals who are so exclusively concerned about purity that you even think that, and they even think that they have a prophetic ministry of correction. Maybe you've seen folks like that. Friend, if you're one of those tonight who is like that, then you need to realize that this is the ministry of God's church collectively. 
and not you as an individual. That means that there's no comfort in Ephesians 4 either for those who are eager to exaggerate the differences among God's people and even stand in the way of real, genuine cooperation that can and should exist from church to church. And since Paul is writing a letter to many churches, the application for unity here is not only on a member-to-member level, but really even on a church-to-church level. Uh, The book of Ephesians was actually written as a circular letter, and it was to be distributed among all the churches uh, in, in Ephesus. So that means Paul is having here in mind more than just one particular local church. So let's get into the text here, and I want you to see uh, kind of what Paul's doing. Uh, That's the preface. Let me tell you where I'm going with this message. Uh, I trust that the major point here of my sermon tonight will be the point of the text, and and here's what I think Paul's thesis is. Listen listen carefully. I think the burden of Paul's message in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is this. Since the church is united, then let the church act like it's united. Another way to put it is this, the church is spiritually one, therefore let it be spiritually one. So what God is calling us to do actually is be who you are. This is the very ethic of Jesus. What what does Jesus say when he says, you are the salt of the earth? What he's saying there is be salty. Since you're the salt, be salty. And I think here, Paul's going at the same idea here. He's saying, look, since you are united, then act like you're united. And that's why he uses the word maintain in verse 3. Notice that he says we are called to maintain unity, which means it's something we already have. Maintain unity. We We are called to live like it and to do everything in our power to maintain the unity which the Spirit has produced. That's the point. Now, one more thing here by way of preface. When you begin to really examine the text, something else emerges uh, at, a, at a deeper look at this text. And I think what emerges is this, is that all throughout the whole text, like a golden thread, is woven, um, th- is woven this ministry, this work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the text itself is laced with Trinitarian language. Um, it's almost as though Paul is saying that the unity I'm addressing here is a God thing. And it not only comes from God, but it's actually grounded in the very unity of God himself. So our ability to be unified comes from the fact that God is a unity. So let's get into the text and let's see how Paul makes this case. And this will serve as my outline tonight. The text is divided into two parts. Number one, the behavior necessary for Christian unity, verses 1 through 3. And number two, the beliefs necessary for Christian unity, verses 4 through 6. So first, the behavior necessary for Christian unity. Paul says this. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner in the Lord. Now, notice the word, therefore. That's the key word in the the entire book of Ephesians. In fact, Ephesians, if you think about it like a door and a hinge, the whole book turns on this one word, therefore. Here's why. The first three chapters uh, of Ephesians are all about doctrine, while the second, the the last three chapters of Ephesians are all about duty. So chapters 1 through 3 is about things you need to know, and chapters 4 through 6 is about things you need to do. 
That's kind of an oversimplification of Ephesians, but it's helpful because that's largely Paul's going from the indicative what is to the imperative what you should do. There was that transition, and literally the transition hangs on that one word, therefore. So that's where the, the book turns here. So Paul is actually shifting thoughts. There's a major shift here in, in Paul's writing. I'm just giving you that so that you know what we're doing. Otherwise, we jump right into chapter 4, and you're not clear on where we're going. So the first three chapters, uh, Paul has been unfolding to his readers this eternal purpose of God. Um, when we went to the book of Ephesians in Greek class, we were uh, extremely blessed by that because there is so much richness to this. And, and all of chapters 1 through 3 is where we spent most of our time. God is establishing uh, his plan, his eternal purposes in the world through Jesus Christ, who died and who rose again to bring about something entirely new, giving you what chapters 1 through 3 is about. A new society, a new humanity, a new human race, a new creation, a new family that God is setting up in which Jew and Gentile and men and women from the most radically diverse backgrounds can be reconciled and united in the same family with the same Heavenly Father. That's what Paul's doing in 1 through 3. He's describing a truly remarkable reality. And now in chapter 4, Paul is moving away from his exposition to an exhortation, from the sublime Christian theology to the concrete, practical, nitty-gritty, down-to-earth realities of life. And notice how he speaks of himself in verse 1. He says, I therefore a prisoner in the Lord. Your, your translation might say for the Lord, but... The point is, he says, I'm a prisoner. I love that phrase. Paul's in prison. This is one of his prison epistles. And he's writing this in prison. And he's in prison, notice, for obedience. Paul had been preaching the gospel. And where did that, where did that land him? Landed him in prison. And which just goes to show that obedience to God doesn't always land us in happy places. And that's good for us to know. And it's good for us to expect for the future. Uh, obeying God means sometimes finding yourself in a more difficult position than you were in before. And notice that Paul doesn't say, I'm a prisoner to the Romans. No, Paul says he's a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is saying, Paul is saying I'm here in prison because Christ wants me here. He is saying, I'm suffering because Jesus wants me in a position of suffering. So when you go down and when you're hurting and when bad things happen, like Pastor Keith, when he lost all of his his phone, his contact, all that stuff, that's because Jesus sovereignly wanted that to happen. And that's comforting. Open theists can't deal with that kind of theology. They don't have any idea. They don't understand how God can be sovereignly in control of something like 9-11. But listen, if God is not in control of those things, we have no hope. Absolutely no hope. And Paul's saying, look, I'm in prison because, Je because Jesus Christ wants me here. I don't like being here. It's not easy. It's not what I would have chosen for myself. But God's in charge of my life, and I trust him. And I trust him. He's incarcerated. He's deprived of worldly comforts. But, but listen, that in no way alters. That in no way alters his fundamental identity or security in Christ. And I take great hope in this. Friends, no matter how painful uh, your life gets, you're still in the Lord. We were just talking about solo moms who at Christmas, this is a difficult time for them. But if you're a Christian, you're in the Lord. That's everything to you. 
There will be dark days ahead of some of us. Some of you have been painfully divorced. Parents with, with wayward children, solo moms. And you will have many days of sorrow and sadness, but you are secure in Christ. Augustus Toplady was right when he said in Rock of Ages, Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the promise is given. More happy, but not more secure, are all the glorified spirits in heaven. So I say to you, continue trusting your Savior. Trust him. Well, what's Paul doing here by referencing his experience in prison? I think what he's saying is this. I think he's saying, in view of my suffering, in view of the experience that I have had with how to walk with Christ, with contentment in the midst of trial, I have some things that I want to say to you about your walk. So he says, verse 1, I urge you to walk. Now, double-click on that word, walk. Paul uses it a lot. In fact, five times in the next chapter, he describes the Christian life as a walk. Why? Well, because we don't get there all at once, do we? It's a walk. It's a walk. And we're walking, and sometimes that walk is slow and tedious and painful. And you're a young mom, and you have young kids, and your days are spent trying to figure out how to do life when life is so complex. And life is a mess. And you're trying to figure out how to do this, how to have humility. I'm a, I'm, I'm a mom at home with, with three or four kids. How do I have humility and gentleness and patience toward my own kids and my husband's? who, when they come home, though they try to serve and help, me, and help me in many ways around the house, they still don't understand my emotional exhaustion. How do you do that as a mom? I think you remember this. The same spirit that caused you to be born again is the same spirit who will energize you with power and energy to walk with humility and gentleness and patience. He's good. Trust him. Seek the help and ministry of the Holy Spirit. But notice how we are to walk. He goes on to say we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying is, look, look who you belong to. Do you know your father? Do you know what family you belong to? Look, you belong to Jesus Christ. Not just some random family or father. No, you belong to the Prince of Peace, the King of the Universe. You belong to God who created everything. And Paul says, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. What he's saying is people of God, we are to live in a way that reflects the glory, the beauty, the holiness, and the significance of our family. Many Asian uh, countries, uh, India's one, uh, is a, are, are shame-based countries. And what I mean by that is, is family, there's a lot of shame that's either brought to the family or honor to the family. This is the way they think about life, is shame. They, they operate with a shame motif. And, um, and in many of these countries, children are expected to live their lives in a way that brings honor to the family name and certainly not shame. And I think likewise what Paul is saying here is that your dad is the king. Your family is a royal priesthood, so we are to represent our father well by walking in a way that brings honor to his name. That's what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. And it all starts with the right kind of behavior. Verse 2, we're to walk with humility and gentleness and patience. We're to put up with one another in love. Why? 
Well, look at verse 4. Why? Because if we don't, we'll fail to maintain unity. We'll fail to maintain unity, verse 3. So it starts with behavior, and it ends with unity. Paul isn't telling us to be humble for the sake of being humble. No, the purpose of humility and gentleness and patience is so that we will maintain unity. You see the connection there? So, so how are we doing with this? I want to ask you tonight, how are you as a Christian doing with this? How are you doing with humility and gentleness and patience? How are you doing with putting up with one another in love? How are we doing as a church? You know what? The fact is some people are just hard to love. They are. Some people are hard. It's hard to be humble and gentle and patient with certain people. And Paul knows it's hard. That's why he uses the phrase, put up with one another. Your translation might say bearing with one another, but the, the, the emphasis is the same. Put up with one another. And I find this language strangely refreshing. Isn't it great that Paul also realizes the struggle that we have? When we, this, is what, this is what's so odd about the church. People come from everywhere. All right, we, we would never in a million years hang out with each other. The only reason why we're in the same room tonight is because Jesus saved us. That's, that's it. And, and, and what we find is when we get to church, we actually have a lot of affiliations and we, we get close with certain people. But if it, if it weren't for Jesus, there, half of us would probably never even hang out. Our personalities, we don't mesh, we don't click, we don't work together, and it's hard. And so, but, but Jesus unites us together, and Paul, Paul understands the difficult nature of, of these kind of relationships. And I find this language refreshing. Uh, it, it's encouraging to think about this. Um, you know, there, everyone in here has somebody that they think is hard to love. It's true. Somebody's probably popping in your mind right now. <laughs> it's true. And, uh, and I'm sure that the same applies here for people um, who who are new. They're coming here. They're visiting our church, and they're just getting into the mess. They're just coming here on the front end of all this. And notice that Paul doesn't say put up with one another. Paul says put up with one another in love. Love is the issue. Anybody can put up with somebody for a few hours or even a few days, but it's another thing altogether to put up with somebody in love. Here's the good news. You don't have to like everybody in this room, but you do have to love everybody. It's, it's true. You don't have to be a regular Starbucks buddy with that sister in Christ who you find to be difficult, although I would encourage you to go to Starbucks with her. And I would encourage you to listen to her story as she unpacks and unfolds for you how Christ has changed her life. Friends, When you come across someone hard to love, think of Christ setting his eternal love upon them. Think of Jesus pouring out his life for them. Pray that God would give you his heart for them. Here's a practical practical suggestion. Choose someone next month or the month after that that you would probably otherwise not spend time with and intentionally spend time with them. Have them over to the house. Serve them a meal. Go to Starbucks with them. Go, go somewhere with them and learn about them. Get to know them. I want to encourage you as members of this church to spread yourselves out in this body. 
It's so easy, right? Because we are, our personalities click with certain people, so it's easy for us to just kind of hang out with the same crew. I want to encourage you as members to, to go to the other side. Some Sunday, instead of sitting in that same pew, move to this side. And sit by somebody else that you would normally not sit by. Go to the back. Worship with the, with the, young, the young couples in the back whose kids are, are noisy. And realize what they go through on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis. Or come to the front where the worship is really robust and, and, and people are really all raising their hands and everybody's charismatic up front. <laughs> come to the front. You know, Move around a little bit in the church. And that's what we need. We need to spend time with one another. And get to know one another and, 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 and invite each other around. Have a barbecue in the summer and, and, and get to know people in this body. That's what, Paul, that's what Paul's encouraging us to do here. Now, that, there it is. We're to walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing or putting up with one another in love. These are basic qualities of a Christian life. And each of these qualities are meant to serve our unity. Uh, and notice that they're all relational qualities, right? They, they have to do with us and doing life together. And they stand in direct opposition to the flesh. We're so self-centered. And our failure, friends, our failure to cultivate these virtues um, is the very thing that leads to tension and strife and ultimately to disunity in the body of Christ. Pride, think about it, pride, a critical spirit, impatience, lack of love, all a great climate for the seeds of conflict to grow. I just gave you all the exact opposite traits of what Paul mentions. Now let me press this close to home for you. You realize that disunity is possible here? It's really possible on a major scale. We could be done tomorrow as a church, save the grace of God. We will be done except for the grace of God. This church will split right down the middle unless we are practicing this text. Now, we, we, look, we can really have differences here. Differences, this goes cross-demographically, old people, young people, right? We, young couples and singles, couples with kids and couples without kids. They, they, they can't get on like, they can't understand, you know, young, a single person may have a hard time understanding a married couple. Or a young married couple without kids may have a hard time understanding another young couple with kids. You know, there's difficulties here. And, and there's great potential here for frustration, for people to say, you don't understand our phase of life. You don't understand what we're going through. If you only knew the things that we had to put up with on a daily basis, and, and friction occurs, and, we, and we, we get upset at one another. I mean, take, for example, the issue of music. Guitars or no guitars, drums or no drums, hand raising or no hand raising, clapping or no clapping. And, and we, t- we, we start forgetting that corporate worship, it's not about us. It's meant to be unselfish. It's, it's, it's about God. And it's possible to worship on a Sunday and to walk out frustrated and to get in the car and drive home with your wife and your kids and, and you're, just, you're just bitter and you're just expressing all your frustration for what just happened in the last service. And God's like, are you kidding me? What are we doing? But you know what? I'm so thankful for you because I don't see that much anymore. Regarding the worship, particularly as an example, it has been so encouraging uh, in the last couple of years to see how far we've grown in this. I feel like we're becoming so 
far less selfish as a church and united in this area. And I'm so thankful for that. And that's just one example. We could, we could bring up a whole host of other examples where friction could possibly occur in the context of the church. But praise God, he is working for our unity. He longs for us to dwell together in harmony. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, we, we should be eager to maintain this unity. Eager. What does the word eager imply? Eager implies that you are anxious to achieve something. You are, you are zealous for it. You are ready to get your feet moving to apply that truth or that thing. Um, and and here's, here's the question for you tonight. Is that a word that's well – does that word well describe you? Are you eager to maintain unity? If so, the question is, what's your plan? What are you currently doing right now that is facilitating or fostering unity? Are you doing anything right now that's cultivating it? Let me suggest something. Mark mentioned it a couple of uh, Sundays ago. Learn to speak evidences of grace into one another's lives. Let me, let me, let me recommend coming to church each week with an intentional plan to identify an evidence of grace in a specific person. Make an application really direct. (laughs) Find a specific person. Talk to your wife. Talk to your children about a specific person that you want to particularly encourage the next Sunday. And come, moms and dads, do this with your kids. Teach it to your kids. Bring your young boys and young girls and say, uh, kids, look, tomorrow when we go to church, we want to specifically encourage Mr. Bennett. We want to encourage him. Do you know anything about Mr. Bennett that you would like to encourage Jeremy about? Well, no. Okay, well, let me, let me share some things that is really encouraging about Mr. Bennett. And share a couple of things. And then encourage your children to go with you and go to Jeremy and say, Jeremy, thanks for serving tirelessly our church in graphic design. Thank you for the bulletins. Thank you for the uh, cards that you make. Thank you for the hours you spend on the website and Midwest Center, all those things. That's evidence your sacrifice, your labor is evidence of God's grace and doing it all without a complaining spirit. And I mean all of that for you specifically, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you for showing Jesus to us in that way. Bring your children, show them what grace looks like in the context of the body. Now, before I jump into into the last point, which is shorter, much shorter, I said earlier that a common thread that runs through this passage is the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. So let me show you something fantastic about verse 3. I don't know how your translation reads, but it probably uses the phrase, the unity of the Spirit. That's a fine translation, but it's not as clear as it could be. I think a more helpful translation of verse 3 is this. Eager to maintain, listen carefully, eager to maintain the unity the Spirit produces through the bond that is peace. Now, if you're interested in why I say that, you can ask me afterward. But for now, just follow me. Paul is saying two things here. Listen, he's first saying that the unity we are to maintain is the unity that the Spirit has produced. It is the Spirit who is responsible for creating this unity in the first place. Application, there is no room for boasting. God gets all the glory. Second, 
Second, by using the phrase, the bond that is peace, Paul is clarifying what unity is. Look at the text, verse 3. Paul is saying that our unity is a unity of peace. We are bound together through peace. And this peace isn't some inner tranquility. This isn't, a, this isn't a calmness that we feel, but it's the very shalom of God that is coming upon us. Or that peace that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. This peace is not an inner tranquility. This is, this is God's peace that he is bringing. He is bringing through this shalom of God an end to the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And most importantly, an end to the hostility that existed between you and God. Friend, if you're here tonight as a non-Christian, then, then you need to realize that God is still angry with you. He is. That peace of God has not come upon you. And you need to turn away from God's anger and wrath. And the way you turn away from God's anger and wrath is going to God and saying, I deserve full punishment and wrath from you. And the only way that I can get out from underneath that is to admit that I have offended you greatly. And I need your son, I need his righteousness to cover me and all of my sin and all of my transgression. And you need to run to Jesus Christ and you need to respond to this message that Jesus came into the world, that he bore all of our sins, took it all upon him, and God the Father crushed his son so that he could take your punishment for you so that you don't have to spend an eternity under the wrathful hand of God. Jesus will lift you from that if you will go to him in faith and repentance, turning from all your sins. That's the gospel. And that's the, that's the response we're meant to have. And for you, my brothers and sisters, remember that once God was your enemy, once you were in a position of enmity with God, but now through Christ you have peace with God. Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what have we seen here? We've seen that Christian unity is not really something to attain, but really it's something to maintain. And it's maintained by that spirit-produced behavior of humility and gentleness and patience and love. But our unity as Christians doesn't just depend on Christ-like behavior. Number two, it centers around a common set of beliefs, verses 4 through 6. Now, in case we're not convinced about the importance of unity, or in case someone is prone to think that, okay, we just want to feel good about Jesus and we'll pursue unity at the expense of truth and the gospel, Paul goes way out of his way in verses 4 through 6 to make sure that we're really clear on the fact that our unity comes from God and revolves around a fundamental set of beliefs. So the word one occurs seven times in these verses. Look at the text. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Now, if you look closely, what you'll find is that four of them have to do with us, and three of them have to do with God. The four things that belong to us is the body of Christ, our hope, our faith, and our baptism. And the rest of the list is the Trinity. It's the Trinity. One Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. So what's the point? What do you think these verses are teaching us? Here's where I think Paul's going. Two things. The first thing they teach us is this. Christian unity is confessional. Christian unity is confessional. 
That is, we believe some things about God, and those beliefs are vital to our unity. Without agreement in these areas, we have no unity. Listen, and part of the reason why we have a confession of faith here as a church, part of the reason is because we believe that the cause of unity in this church is best served not by finding the lowest common denominator of doctrine around, around which all of us can gather, but by elevating the value of truth and stating the doctrinal parameters of our church and then demonstrating to the world how Christians can love each other across boundaries rather than by removing theological boundaries. We put boundaries in place in order to protect us and show that we can love people outside of that, but we are going to keep our boundaries. You know what that means? Simply, it means this. Theology exists for unity, not disunity. But could it be for some of us that we don't like thinking about how we agree with other churches or where we can grow in further agreement? But instead, we start with where we disagree and seek to identify other ways in which we might be different? I hope that's not our spirit. That's the first thing I think these verses teach us. Number two, first thing is we're confessional. The second thing, these verses teach us that each person of the Trinity is intimately involved in unifying us as brothers and sisters. I think this is great how Paul links all these confessional beliefs with the Trinity. How does he do it? How, how is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit involved in unifying us? Well, look, look at the text. First, verse 4, first, there is one body because there is one Spirit. There is one Spirit giving life to the body of Christ. One Spirit produces the one body and gives life to it. So the Spirit creates the one body, and the oneness of the Spirit is the reason for the oneness of the body. There can only be one body because there's only one spirit. You see that? Number two, there is one hope, one faith, and one baptism, verse 5. Why is there only one hope, one faith, and one baptism? Because there's only one Jesus who's the object of our faith, who's the object of our hope, and who's the object of our baptism. After all, we're baptized into Christ, Romans 6. And there can only be one faith, one hope, and one baptism because there's only one Christ who's the object of our faith, hope, and baptism. Number three, there's one people of God, verse six, because there is only one God and Father of us all. He is over all and through all and in all. So you see, the Father is over the one true believing people of God. The Lord Jesus is the object of our one faith, hope, and baptism. And the Spirit gives life to the one body, the church. Isn't that great? Isn't that great to see the Trinity intimately involved in our unity? Isn't it comforting to know that each person of the Trinity cares about us collectively and individually? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working unity in us. Praise God. Well, we've seen two major ideas tonight from Ephesians 4. First, Christian unity is maintained by the spirit-produced behavior of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And secondly, Christian unity comes from God and revolves around a common set of beliefs. In short, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4 is we are united, and since God has made us one, we are to live like we're one. 
always being eager to maintain the unity the Spirit produces. Now, as a church, we have some work to do in this area, and not only in the context of our local church, but with other Christians and other churches in general. How do we view other Christians and other churches? I mean, particularly those whom we, with whom we would disagree with theologically or methodologically. When I say Bellevue, what's your first thought? When I say Owensboro Christian Church, what's your immediate thought? When I say Good Shepherd, what comes to mind? Test yourself. I wonder what comes to God's mind. And I wonder if your first thought is Christ's first thought. Take a piece of paper. Name five good things about that church down the street. Quickly. Can you do it? Do you even know five things? Do you even care to know five things? Challenging, isn't it? Well, dear people, let me close by giving you some three practical takeaways. Put this in your in your sack. Take it home. Three things. Number one, learn to see other believers first and foremost as Christians, not as Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, Charismatics, Pentecostals, and Arminians. At the end of the day, a real conversion is not a conversion to a party or to a church denomination, but to Christ. And as Christ indwells other Christians, we are to treat them as we would treat the Savior himself. If you are prone to a critical, suspicious spirit toward other Christians who come from different theological perspectives, perhaps it is because you are unaware of how much Jesus actually loves them. Number two, avoid as much as possible All arguments and controversies over secondary matters. Controversies will arise and secondary issues need to be debated from time to time, but do not give your life to it. Do not give your life to it. Our first business is to lead people to heaven. Not to argue with our brothers and sisters whose fundamental work is to do the same. To lead people to heaven. On your deathbed, you will not grieve that you gave too much of your time to prayer and to making Christ known. But you will grieve over the amount of time you spent on secondary and lesser things. George Whitfield did a lot of thinking about Christian unity. And as a young Christian, he was mentored by a man who instilled within him the importance of Christian unity as a virtue. At one point, you know, he had this conflict, this ongoing debate with, with, with John Wesley. On Calvinism, And at one point, he asked for counsel about how to deal with the differences that he had with Mr. Wesley over Calvinism. And his Calvinist mentor wrote him a letter, and here's what he had to say. Mr. Wesley, I think, is wrong in some things. And Mr. Law is wrong also. But I believe that both Mr. Law and Mr. Wesley and others with whom we do not agree in all things will shine brightly in glory. It is best, therefore, for a gospel minister simply and powerfully to preach those truths he has been taught of God and to meddle as little as possible with those who are the children of God. Though they should differ in many things, I have not given way to any whom I thought to be in error. No, not for one hour. But I think it is best not to dispute where there is no possibility of convincing. 
how many hours are we going to debate fraternally? How many hours are we willing to give up sharing the gospel with lost people because we're too busy doing this? You know what Whitfield wrote in his journal after he read that? He wrote this. To contend where there is no probability of convincing only feeds and adds fuel to an unholy fire. Friends, we would do really well to follow Whitfield in this. Controversies distract us and they rob us from our greater purpose. We will definitely differ on some pretty important matters with other Christians and other churches. And that's okay. But Richard Baxter and other reformers were right when they said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And finally, number three, let us be sure to recognize our own failures in this grace of Christian unity. Oh, that our criticisms would be more directed to our own faults. Man, we're so easy. We're so prone to just point out, Lord, help us. Help us to see self. Lord, help us to see self. People of God, that's our problem. That's our major problem. May God help us. Go to Jesus. Seek closer fellowship with a Savior. Friends, this life will soon be over. It it, it is flying by. Give yourselves to things that matter. Give yourselves to things that matter. May the Spirit of Christ and His love fill our hearts so that we will immediately find ourselves in deeper fellowship with all Christians. I close with the words of Wesley again, or with Wesley for the first time, who had this to say. He was asked to speak at Whitfield's funeral. I don't know if you knew that. And this is what Wesley said at Whitfield's funeral. These are guys that had conflict. Here's what he said. The foundation of Mr. Whitfield's life was the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit, filling his soul with tender love for every child of man. From this source arose that flood of eloquence That force of persuasive preaching, which the most hardened sinners could not resist. Can anything but love produce love? And it was this that shone in his very countenance and filled his every word, whether in public or private. End of quote. Well, friends, it was this Christian virtue of Whitfield. That once made a dying girl, after hearing him preach, say, I will go to Mr. Whitfield's God. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that you'll go to Mr. Whitfield's God. And for all of us, let's be like Mr. Whitfield. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that though we have many deficiencies, which you could point out all day long, you still love us and are faithful to us. 
Make us the men and women you want us to be for your glory. Give us wide, passionate love for your church. Thank you for what you are working into our body. Strengthen it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.